Chapter Thirty Seven of The Road to Mandalay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Hadley. The Road to Mandalay by Bithia Mary Croker. Chapter Thirty Seven The Tug of War. One evening after they had been several days at sea, Sophie and Shafto were gazing down at the steerage passengers. She said, I've noticed such an odd person watching you. He looks as if he knew you. Knew me, repeated Shafto. What is he like? A tall, broad-shouldered, lanky man. There he is, leaning over the side, wearing a blue serge suit and a soft felt hat. Shafto stared for a moment. Then he said, by George, I do know him, though I can hardly believe my eyes. I'll go and speak to him and find out what this means. And he hurried away below. Hello, Mung Ba, he exclaimed. Say, this is something like a surprise. What are you doing here? Much the same as yourself, sir. The tug of war is drawing us all home. I have left Mung Ba in the yellow robe behind me, and now I'm Corporal Michael Ryan. I'm going into the army again. Why, I'm only thirty-four when all's said and done. Of course, the shaven head ages a fellow, but I'll grow me hair on me passage home, and maybe a mustache as well. Someone told me that kerosene oil is a grand thing. And you are going to join up too, sir? I hope so. I put two terms at Sandhurst, so I shall have a try. I should like to get into the Flying Corps. And what will herself say? with a glance towards Sophie on the main deck, to all this fighting and flying. Oh, Miss Lee won't stand in my way. She intends to look for a job, too. Tell me, Michael, do you really believe they will take you back into the service after your adventure in Upper Burma, and seven years' absence without leave? Well, since you ask me, sir, in my opinion, they might do worse. Anyhow, I'll have a good try. I might get a sort of doctor's certificate. Mental, you know. I'm a first-class shot, though naturally a bit out of practice, and very hefty with the bayonet. I'd like well to stir them Germans up, ever since one great ugly brute went out of his way to give me a kick. I was black and blue for weeks. Did you hear them the day before they were took off? Just screeching mad, shouting and drinking as if the world was their own. Well, anyhow, I can enlist as full private, I'm sound in wind and limb, and I tell ye, we want all the men we can get. For I heard them Germans talking very big in Rangoon, saying they'd eat us all up within the next three months, body, sleeves, and trimmings. Easier said than done, rejoined Shafto, although they have a splendid army and thousands of big guns. I'd like well to have a hand in real fighting, none of your autumn maneuvers, but the proper thing. And after I put the war over, I'll go and see Ireland. It's strange, though. I'm Irish. I've never put a toe in the country, and never been nearer it than a black native. My father's people were reared in the Galtees. It's my Irish blood that's uppermost now, and driving me home. I've often heard the boys talking of the grand purple mountains, the wonderful greenery everywhere, and the lovely soft moist air. Well, Michael, I hope you may see it all some day. What put it into your head to throw off the yellow robe and take this sudden start? It was the barrack talk, sir. 
I heard them chaps cursin' and groanin' that they were stuck fast in Rangoon, and had no chance of gettin' a look in. And says I to myself, what's to hinder you from goin'? But how about the passage money? inquired Shafto. I thought you were vowed to poverty, and had nothing in your wooden bowl. I had the ruby that you gave back to me. I believe it was of rare fine stone. I had it in me mind to offer it to the pagoda. It was well I waited, as things turned out. A friend sold it for me in the bazaar. He got four hundred pounds of English money. He says it was worth some thousands. It was bought for a pagoda, anyhow, and I have a nice big sum lodged in a London bank. And when the war is over, please God, it will help to settle me in a small place in Ireland. I took me passage and bought some kit, and I have a few pounds in hand, so that I won't be stranded. At first I felt the clothes terrible awkward, especially the trousers, after living in a petticoat so long. And I did not know what to be doing with the knife and fork, and leading such a quiet, cramped sort of life, I lost the use of myself. But I tramped up and down the decks for a couple of hours of a morning, and a nice young fellow in the pantry has lent me a pair of dumbbells. By the time I get to England, I'll be well set up with the black moustache, and, Mabby, you'll hardly know me. How did you get rid of the yellow robe? Oh, easy enough, and without any ceremony of disgrace whatever. Sure, half the Burmans you meet have worn it for perhaps a year or two, but it's not everyone who has the vocation. I can't understand your ever taking to it. Can ye not, sir? rejoined the ex-pongee, laying muscular hand on the bulwark and fixing a faraway abstracted gaze upon the lazy green sea. I may as well tell ye that the first story I made out to ye was not altogether the truth. I had in me mind a mental reservation. I just slipped out of army life and hid meself in the forests, all along of a little girlie. His lower lip trembled as he added, "'She died, sir, and I was just broke over it.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Shafto. "'Well, such things have happened before.' "'It was like this, sir, now turning and fixing a pair of tragic dark eyes on his companion. "'I was engaged to be married, same as yourself. "'She was the daughter of a sergeant in the arsenal in Madras. "'Her father and mine were old friends.' and when mine was killed in Afghanistan, me mother just dwindled away and broke her heart. Sergeant Farron and his wife was real good to me, and took me home. She mothered me and she belted me, and they helped to start me for the Lawrence Asylum Orphanage. I was about eight years of age then, and this little girl was two. After a good spell I came back to St. George Fort, a grown-up man and a corporal. Polly, she was grown-up too and the prettiest girl you could see in a thousand miles. We fell in love with one another, and Sergeant Farron had sort of wished for me, being, they say, the very spirit of me own father, and though I knew in me heart Polly was a million times too good for me, and I was not fit to wipe her shoes, still I made bold to ask him for her, and he said yes. I knew I'd get permission to marry, for my name was never in the defaulter's book, and Polly was fair as a lily, not one of your yellow cranies, the colonel was so dead set again. Well, I was just too happy to be lucky, saving up me pay, and Mrs. Farron buying a few bits of house linen for us, and Polly making her trousseau. 
when the regiment was shifted all of a sudden from Madras to Mandalay, and our plans were knocked on the head. Yes, that was bad luck, said Shafto sympathetically. Still in all, I was full of hope, expecting my stripes and hearing every mail from Polly, when one day the letter corporal handed me an envelope with a deep black edge. It was from Sergeant Farron, telling me Polly was dead, taken off in three hours with cholera. He enclosed half a letter she was writing to me when she was called. Well, sir, I would not believe it. No, I held out again it for days, but of course I had to give in. At first the grief was just a little scratch, but every day the pain went deeper and deeper, as if someone was turning a knife in my heart. To think I'd never look upon her again or hear her voice and her gay laugh, it seemed impossible. But in the end I believed, and I felt as if I was groping about in black darkness. What had I to live for? What was the good of going on? At times I thought of my rifle, but I put that idea aside because of the regiment and the scandal in the newspapers. Still, I was always meditating some way out. I think now, if I'd opened my mind to one of my pals, it would have been easier, and I'd not have felt it so cruel hard, but somehow I'd never breathed the name of Polly to one of them. I held her like a holy thing apart. I could not stand the talk and the coarse chaff of the barrack room, so I kept my trouble sealed up, till at last it grew too big for me, and I made up my mind to do away with myself, where no one would be a penny the wiser. I got a couple of days' leave, by way of seeing a pal at Tonghu, and I went up the river and away into the jungles, and wandering about looking for some venomous reptile to put an end to me in a natural way. But if you'll believe me, sir, divil a bite I could get, not after searching for half a day, and, of course, had I been looking without intention, I'd have found dozens. What with walking miles in the blazing sun and nothing to eat, I believe I fell down with a stroke, and some woodcutters found me and carried me into their village, a big place with a great thorn hedge and gates to keep off the dacoits. The head man they call a thuggie took me over, and his women nursed me. He was a rich fellow with four yoke of oxen, and so no expense was spared, and there I lived for many a long day, very strange and out of myself. I could not remember who I was, nor where I came from. All the clothes I had to me name was a shirt and a pair of drawers. By degrees, thanks to great charity and kindness, I come round. I remember everything only too well. And then I buried McRyan in the jungle, and became a Pongyi. The peace and quiet ate into me very bones, and I took on the yellow robe. The rest and the holy life tamed me, and did a soul good. And many an evening, when I'd be roaming in the forest among the splendid tall trees and beautiful flowers, with the birds and the animals around me so tame and at their ease, I'd have a feelin' that Polly was walkin' alongside of me, the face on her shinin' with the light of heaven. But, drawing himself direct, excuse me, sir, for bothering you with all this foolish, crazy sort of talk. Not at all, said Shafto. Thank you so much for telling me your story. I am truly sorry for you, Ryan. It was hard lines losing your Polly. Do you mind telling me some more? 
After you had recovered your memory and become a Pongi, what happened next? Well, after a while, I chanced to see English papers and hear outside news, and I got a cast in a cargo boat down the river. I had a sort of longing to see the soldiers. The love of the service is in me blood. So now and then I was drawn to Rangoon to get a sight of the khaki and to hear the barrack yarns. You see, one quarter of me is Singalese. I suppose me grandfather on one side was a Buddhist, and that is how Pongi life came so pleasant and easy to me. The three-quarters of me is an Irish soldier, and every day the soldier within me grows, and the Pongi dies away. And you will never return to Burma? Never, no. I have laid out to go to Ireland and spend the rest of my time there when the war is over. Ah, I wonder when the war will be over, said Shapto. God alone knows, exclaimed the Pongi. They were talking in the bazaar about the end coming about Christmas. I think meself it will be a long business, and an awkward business, too. So do I, agreed Shafto, recalling the sage remarks of George Gregory. Yes, it's like a light stuck in an old thatch. We'll have half the world in it before long, and the greatest blaze as ever was known. I see that Australia and Canada and South Africa are all coming to lend a hand. Well, we want every hand we can get, and every foot, too. I've heard plenty of big talk in the bazaar, where the Germans have laid out a mint of money. By all accounts, they are going to take Persia, India, Burma, the whole of our trade, money and fleet. Well, if that comes off, it'll be a cold world. By the way, sir, he continued in another tone, did you see Ma Chit the day we were leaving Rangoon, signin' and wavin' to ye as we cast off? Shafto nodded curtly. And ye never took no notice? Ye might have given her just a small sign to ease her heart, but I'm thinkin' ye have a hard drop in ye. I dare say I have, assented Shafto, and I'm glad of it, for now and then it has prevented me from making an awful fool of myself. Ah, oh, well, sometimes the fools have the best of it. Not that I'm saying a word in favor of Ma Chit, only that if you'd waved your hand, she'd have gone away with the small bit of consolation and comfort. By the way, Ryan, what did you mean by saying you were a magician? Oh, that was only a bit of a boast, sir. I know a few tricks I learnt in the regiment. One of the privates was professional conjurer, and mighty clever when sober. When I showed off one or two little tricks with stones or buttons or bits of string, the Burmans were sure I was a real wizard, and looked up to me. So they did, and then the birds and animals, being so friendly, I was always so much at ease with them, and the children, they said I cast spells. The steerage passengers were not a little surprised to note the foregathering of a first-class passenger with this odd reserved person, whose shaven head was associated in their opinion with the interior of Rangoon jail. Nor was this all. Now and then a remarkably pretty young lady accompanied the said first-class passenger and brought fruit and books and cakes, and the three appeared to be on the best of terms. The Pongyi and Shafto had many long talks together. They discussed life among the Burmese, the prospects of war, the changes that might awake and shake the world, and, appropriate, supplement to the topic of war, more than once they spoke of death. I've been so long with the Buddhists 
that the fear of the grave is wore out of me said ryan ida almost as soon be dead as not it's only another new life you just step in and meet your old friends i suppose sir you do not go along with me there no replied shafto who had an all englishman's shrinking reluctance to discuss his belief or his inner life yours is a nice easy path too good to be true i'm afraid my creed is to do our best to help other people and to take what comes goodness knows you have helped me mr shafto and the pongi drew back a step and looked at him queerly what with saving me life and then making sort of friends with me as man to man your kindness will stand in me memory till the clay is over me shafto and the pongi separated at marseilles the latter went round by the bay whilst mrs gregory and her party travelled overland and they did not meet again for nearly two years end of chapter thirty seven read by marianne hadley